Welcome to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine, a show where we report, rebel, and tell it like it is. On this show, we center your concerns about rebuilding our nation and advancing the promise of equality. Join me as we tackle the most compelling issues of our times. On our show, History Matters, we examine the past as we think about the future. On today's show, it's pretty exciting. We're having the sex talk you wish you'd got from your parents. Sex Ed 101, birth control, periods, and more. Do you remember Judy Bloom's Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret. Well, today I'm asking the questions and inviting you to join us as we talk about sex, periods, non-binary healthcare, maternal health, what we don't know even about our own bodies. So today we're asking, what do you wish that you learned from your parents in school or even now? And when it comes to reproductive and sexual health as policy issues, what's on the docket and on the ballot in 2021? Whose rights are at stake? Now, helping us to sort out these questions and to set the record straight are very important and special guests. Joining me in this episode is Kelly Davis, a maternal health policy expert and vice president for global birth equity and innovation at the National Birth Equity Collaborative, an organization devoted to black maternal and infant health. In this episode, you'll also be hearing from Dr. Fatu Forna. Dr. Forna is a maternal health consultant, obstetrician gynecologist, and epidemiologist. Dr. Forna has worked with the World Health Organization as their lead for reproductive and maternal health in Sierra Leone and in the U.S. with the CDC as a medical epidemiologist. Joining me also today is Mary Emily O'Hara. Mary is an LGBTQ media and policy expert and rapid response manager at GLAAD. They are also an award-winning journalist specializing in LGBTQ plus issues and have written for Teen Vogue, Vice, Rolling Stone, The Advocate, Al Jazeera, and at other outlets. Finally, you'll also be hearing in this episode from Jennifer Weiss-Wolf. Jennifer is an advocate for menstrual equity and the founder of Period Equity, a legal organization devoted to achieving menstrual equity through advocacy and policy change. And so we're going to get right to it and break down the taboos. And so I want to start first with Dr. Fatu Forna setting the stage for us. Why are people so creeped out by periods and the taboos of talking about these issues? What do we need to do better? I'm not sure how it evolved to where uh, you know, as a society, we have such a difficult time uh, talking about periods uh, to our children and as we grow up to become adults, uh, talking about it freely. For me, I got involved, you know, I grew up in Sierra Leone in West Africa, uh, but it's a similar story in many countries around the world where my parents actually never said anything to me about my body, the changes I would go through about my periods, about sex, none of that stuff. So as you can imagine, as a child, it's very traumatic, uh, you know, to go through those changes and not understand what's going on. Uh, you know, and I kind of figured things out at my older sisters and friends guiding me. But when I, I, I grew up, I, I wanted to be an obstetrician gynecologist from a very young age. And when I became that doctor, uh, you know, I decided that I was going to do my best to educate my patients, but also break that cycle for myself, for my children, and work to try to break that cycle for others so that, you know, we are more comfortable uh, kind of guiding our children, our societies, uh, you know, to enter, to celebrate womanhood. Uh, and that's where puberty parties came along uh, uh, that I put together. But you know, people also feel shame and embarrassment associated with their periods too. And this is little girls, um, kids who are non-binary, um, trans boys who come onto periods and can feel shame and embarrassment. How many of you remember wearing white and then there it is, it's kind of red spot. 
And so I also then wanted to know from Dr. Fatu Forna, what, why this period party and what she's learned from or gained from as a doctor and also as a mother by turning to celebrating menstruation and periods. And believe me, there are people who still don't want to celebrate their periods, but let's listen to what she has to say. Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, having a period is a natural thing. You know, every human beings, we go through this, other animals go through this. Uh, so it is a natural rite of passage of, it shows growth, it shows maturity, it shows that you're growing from a girl to becoming a woman. Uh, and those are things that are, happen, that are happening. You need to be aware of them and be prepared for them. And for me, that's how I started puberty parties. If you look around uh, in different cultures around the world, most people have some kind of celebration, whether it's when girls uh, uh, become a women or boys uh, become men, or the just uh, when, when people grow from when you are children to growing into the teenage years, there is some kind of celebration. And I think it's because there's a need uh, for us as humans to not only teach our children, uh, you know, in a, in a, you know, in a kind of standardized way, but to have a community support us. So for me, Puberty Party was having that community come together, uh, you know, as a doctor who, you know, I do this very well for my patients, but I have three daughters and a son. I actually found it a little difficult talking to my own kids. I think it's something different about, uh, you know, having intimate conversations about seeing your children as sexual beings, you you uh, or growing into becoming sexual sexual beings, you have to make that mindset change uh, uh, to have it easy. So I think that's why those kind of celebrations are core, uh, you know, developed. And when my daughters were going through puberty, I had written books about puberty and about teaching others. Uh, but I want, and my daughters had read this because, you know, being a, a daughter of an OBGYN, you're kind of forced uh, to read all these books. However, they can't I felt- escape it. <laughs> <laughs> they, they can't ex ex escape it. But I, I felt that children accept things and they understand things a little easier when they're in a group, when it's a lot of fun, when their friends are around. Uh, so I, reached out to a few mothers uh, in uh, my daughter's class. She was around uh, 12 at that point, and they were all so excited. They said, oh my gosh, I know I have to have this conversation. I haven't done it. Uh, it's difficult. This puberty party thing sounds amazing. And all we did was get together in a group I put together the talks, the slides, the videos, had food and cake and music. And we all got together, 10 girls and their moms in a circle and talked through a lot of these things and you know, found that community and, and went through that process together. Okay, it's time to turn to Jennifer Weisswolf because I'm interested in what's led her to become an advocate for menstrual equity and the founder of Period Equity, a legal organization devoted to achieving menstrual equity through advocacy and policy change. So we've heard from Dr. Fatu Forna about how to celebrate having a period, but the reality is that it can be hard to celebrate having a period when there's period punishment. And what I'm talking about here are, are economic penalties, right? This sort of luxury tax that, yes, is put on tampons, where they can be out of reach for people who experience menstruation, including people who are incarcerated. Um, what's the equipment that one needs when you're menstruating, right? You know, there's the tampon. And to be honest with you, not everybody knows how to use a tampon. There are stories of people inserting tampons with plastic wrapped around it inside their bodies or remember the old days with the cardboard applicator i remember in high school sometimes folks putting the whole tampon and the cardboard applicator um, in the vagina of the uterus and um that's just because no one's told them any different the parents had never explained to them how do you use a tampon um and so now we turn to jennifer weisswolf 
So Jennifer is going to tell us why she decided to become an advocate for menstrual equity and break down some of these issues. What a great question. What a great discussion this is. I'm so happy to be here with you all. Um, yeah, I think that most people don't grow up saying, I want to be a lawyer who focuses on menstruation. Um, and I, I didn't either, <laughs> to be honest. Um, and it, for me, it was about uh, six years ago that um, I just sort of accidentally discovered um, this notion that in my own community uh, here in New York, um, that fo for folks for whom they lack the um, finances or the agency to really be able to manage their menstruation, the equipment, so to speak, um, as you say, to be able to afford things like menstrual products or to be able to handle their menstruation um, with, with just like the dignity of a clean bathroom with running water, um, with, with the products that they needed readily accessible and available. Um, discovering that that was actually happening in my own community. And I discovered it because um, a, a pair of uh, siblings were collecting tampons and pads for a local food pantry. And I, and I received um, an invitation to, to provide a donation to their project. Um, I'm, a, I'm a lawyer by day, I'm a policy advocate by day. And the first question, well, the first thing I did was, was sign up to donate. Um, because I was just so shocked and saddened and horrified to imagine this happening to anyone I knew and to know that it was happening in my own backyard um, and that there were folks who, who were um, clients and participants in this food pantry who had this need that wasn't being met. But the second thing that really I stopped to think about was, well, why? Why would this be something that was known to two kids who volunteered at the food pantry and the food pantry didn't have any recourses or systematic way to address something it knew to be a need. Um, so for, from that moment on, I sort of started unpacking where menstruation fit into the laws and regulations and budgets and rules by which we live. And I was pretty, well, I guess I'd say I was stunned, although, you know, in retrospect, none of this is stunning. We, we've all grown up with this stigma and taboo and shame that surrounds menstruation. Um, and we also have grown up, I would say, here in the United States in a fully unrepresentative democracy as much as we like to tell ourselves otherwise sometimes. Um, and when I had this recognition that menstruation really was not addressed in any productive way in, in our laws, um, either not at all or in ways that are inconsistent with one another without getting too wonky from, from the Food and Drug Administration to labor law to benefits. Um, none of it made sense. None of it added up. And it's kind of like a punishment, isn't it? I mean, it really, when you, when you think about it, um, the, the legislator from Colorado, Leslie Howard, has just been so incredibly fabulous in terms of introducing legislation in Colorado to provide equity for uh, period products in um, jails there, because it's a thing that folks don't think about. Like the United States incarcerates more women than any other country in the world. And with that, we have folks who menstruate who are in prison who have had to engage in sexual favors with guards in order to get access to tampons or have to show to guards, you know, why it is that they need a tampon, which is so incredibly invasive. And then the products themselves are exorbitant. Um, they cost exorbitantly in the uh, prison commissaries. And so when you're talking about equity issues, these are issues that range from the, you know, what's called the period tax, the added luxury tax on tampons to what happens um, to incarcerated populations. Yeah, so that's so that was it. So all of these ideas were swirling in my head and I started researching and coming up with and, and discovering all the ways that menstruation had been utterly excluded or not acknowledged, um, you know, or worse, as, as you described, that people are really forced to live um, and exist in circumstances that were utterly unsafe, unhealthy, and undignified. And so I started just trying to imagine what our laws would look like if they did the opposite of that. Um, and if they acknowledged menstruation and considered it um, as, a, as a way to create equity or ensure equity um, for all. And so that's what that's that's what that's come to look like. It's been this whole agenda that's in, 
included everything from considering menstruation for those who are detained or incarcerated or otherwise lack agency to considering menstruation in schools and how and how schools address it uh, to considering taxation to considering federal benefits you name it Okay, so now we really need to get into the thick of what exactly is Sex Ed 101, and especially at a time in which state legislatures have politicized the body, have politicized sex education. In parts of the world, if you're five or six years old, you're beginning to learn about your body in school. And yet in the United States, it's become so politicized that there are states that ban sex ed, or if they allow for sex ed, then it's only abstinence only teaching. And it's in those very states where there are the highest rates of teen transmitted sexually uh, transmitted diseases or teen pregnancies and so much more. So Kelly Davis is a maternal health policy expert and vice president for global birth equity and innovation at the National Birth Equity Collaborative, an organization that's devoted to Black maternal and infant health. She is a badass. And so Kelly Davis, she's got to tell us, and she does, about what sex ed is and why it's so important. So comprehensive sexual education should actually be over the life course, right? So there are ways to talk to children about um, their body parts. There are ways to talk about gender, sexual orientation, um, menstruation, attraction, all the things that come along with kind of sexual and reproductive fulfillment that in our society here in America, we start to think about in high school, often after the time that adolescents have begun their sexual journeys, right? And a lot of the stigma, the myths that Dr. Fatu Forma was talking about have already kind of taken hold um, while folks are getting kind of, you know, sex ed one-on-one. Also across our states, in the United States and actually across the globe, what constitutes sex ed 101 um, is vastly different, right? So I come from the deep South, even though I live in the largest city in the nation, New York City, but where I'm from in Mississippi, you know, abstinence only education, you're not allowed to talk about or even utter the word abortion. Um, they teach sexual education kind of as a binary uh, where you can only be a male or a female, which we also know is not true. There are unlimited amount of genders and sexual orientations. And so really our nation does a grave disservice to sexual and reproductive health. And we see that. We see that when it comes to the, the um, really uh, ballooning, the epidemic of um, sexual transmitted infections. We see that when we come to the Black maternal mortality and morbidity crisis, a main signal of which is fibroids, which are clearly related to periods, right, which we don't really talk about. Um, and so all these things build upon each other. And so when we're talking about menstruation, um, really we, we have to like take the gender kind of away from it because there are people across gender spectrums that menstruate. Um, we talk about the products, not, you know, pads or tampons or other things that folks use um, in order to take care of themselves during menstruation. And then we really have to focus on eradicating the stigma which has come up, which is, cl is clear, the, the stigma exists for everyone who has a period, but if you have other marginalizations, it's even more stigmatized, right? So if you're dealing with poverty, if you are a queer person, um, it's stigmatized. If you're a, a woman of color, right? It's all, it's all of these things, all these marginalizations kind of stack up on each other to make this um, very natural human function um, really taboo. And then in the secrets, in the shame, that's when we have, um, you know, unhealthy behaviors, which have been structurally created by um, the stigma and the marginalizations of our society. Kelly Davis opened an important door in our conversation. And I was so grateful to have Mary Emily O'Hara on the show with us. They are an award-winning journalist specializing in LGBTQ plus issues and have written for Teen Vogue, Vice, Rolling Stones, The Advocate, Al Jazeera, and more. And you may know Mary Emily O'Hara from work at GLAAD. And the reality is that these are issues that are tough enough to go through. Having a, a period, not being able to afford the menstrual products, 
but there are added layers. There are added layers in terms of the attacks on LGBTQ kids that we're seeing now in schools where they're not even able in some school districts to use the bathrooms that are most appropriate for them and what they want. Deny the opportunity to play on sports teams. There's a lot of stigmatization and a lot of shaming that's taking place. Um, and that's not being talked about enough. And children are enduring this, suffering through it. And so are their families that are seeking to be advocates um, for their kids, the moms, the dads. And, and we've seen some of these stories with children bravely testifying before state legislatures saying, let me be me. So how do we think about these issues involving sex ed 101, menstruation and other bodily functions um, as we're thinking about LGBTQ youth, about trans youth. And so Mary Emily O'Hara helped us to level set. Yeah, thank you for raising such great points about that, Kelly, and for opening up that part of the discussion, Michelle. I think there is a lot of considerations for LGBTQ people when it comes to sexual and reproductive health in general. And the main one really is a lack of education, a lack of appropriate care, a lack of understanding. And that does start with sex ed, which is the subject of today's conversation. There's only six states in the US and DC that require sex ed in schools to even be LGBTQ inclusive. So right away, kids growing up in school, not only are they not getting information about same-sex relationships, about gender identity, about all these basic things, but they're not getting into the nuance and the details here. So for example, we know that many trans men and non-binary people still have periods uh, regardless. You know, people use varying um, levels of, of hormone treatments. So some trans men starting testosterone might still get their periods for longer than others, for example. Some trans men and non-binary people might be on smaller doses of hormone replacement therapy and never stop getting periods. And trans women who are on estrogen and hormone replacement therapy often experience um, cycles and, and basically every other part of the period besides the bleeding. So of course, trans women do not have uteruses and ovaries, but the hormones can still cause cramping, bloating, nausea, breast soreness, all of these other issues related to periods. And a lot of people don't even have this basic information. Um, when they go into tr gender transition, they don't necessarily know how it's going to impact them in, in the sense um, when it comes to menstruation and periods and sort of period-like symptoms. Um, and then of course, lesbian and bisexual women have all of the same issues that all other women have when it comes to reproductive health. So as Kelly raised, fibroids are an increasing problem. Um, just hormones, period problems, increasing heavy bleeding, stuff like that as you get older, perimenopause, menopause, access to products and care. So yeah, it's really just, um, it's kind of a compounded problem, I think, when you get into LGBTQ people and their sexual and reproductive health. This conversation was beginning to reel the dangers of politicizing the body, politicizing sexuality. And so I wanted to turn back to Dr. Fatu Forna about the ways, the problems in which politicizing the body ends up hurting people. Yeah, I think, as a basic human right, we, we have to understand that every human being deserves to have a healthy sexual and reproductive life. That is just a basic standard. Uh, and, and with that in mind, I think as a society, we have to realize that when we're bringing up children, we teach them how to cross a busy street. You know, that's something that, that could be life-threatening to them. We teach them to do all of these important things, but we neglect to teach them about their sexual and reproductive health, which is something that will impact you for the rest of your life. Whether or not you choose to have children, 
uh, your sexual pleasure, which is important for every human being, what diseases you could or could not be exposed to. So it is, it is a really an important right and something that we need to provide. And when we politicize it, we take away from the ability of people to understand their bodies and to reach their optimal health status. Uh, so one of the, uh, um, and because of this, because of this framework, it's not just something that's in the US, it's around the world that it's politicized. Uh, young people have difficulty getting the information they need to reach their full potential. So as parents, as a society, we have to step up and fill that void, uh, you know, and not just, for example, leave it up to schools. We've heard Kelly talk about, you know, Mississippi, where, and there are many states like that in the US and countries like that, where you can't men mention condoms, you can't mention things to protect the health uh, of people. So uh, I developed a framework for parents to help them talk to their kids about their sexual and reproductive health, because this is something that you have to start with your children the, when they're babies, when they first start talking and learning the words uh, and you build up to it. But as parents, we have to keep this framework uh, in mind or as a community. Number one, you know, it's called the three E's framework, endorsement, education, and empowerment. Endorsement is important because we have to endorse, we have to promote a positive approach to sexuality. Understand that human beings are sexual beings. It is normal uh, for us to grow and develop and to have sexual feelings and to want to have a healthy sexual life. So parents, communities, we have to endorse and promote that we are sexual uh, beings and promote that positive approach. Education is what we've been talking about. We do have to educate our young, our children, our teens, our young adults, uh, you know, and give them the information they need uh, to be able to have a healthy sexual and reproductive health. And, and most importantly, empowerment. We not only have to endorse and give them the, uh, the education, we have to empower uh, people uh, that uh, to take charge and to protect their own sexual and reproductive lives because uh, you know only you can do it for yourself. So politicizing it, I think, takes away from all of those things. And we end up having children, young adults and adults who don't have what they need to have healthy sexual and reproductive lives. Okay, so we promised to get down to basics. So here are some basics. I wanted to know about what's a condom? What's a vagina? What's a penis? And so let's take a listen to one of my show's producers, Oliver Hogg, telling us about what's a vagina, what's a penis. And then we're gonna hear from Dr. Fatu Forna about condoms. The penis is a reproductive and sex organ that's made up of spongy tissue. The spongy tissue fills with blood during sexual excitement, a process known as an erection, or getting hard. Urine and semen pass through the penis. The vagina is a stretchy passage that connects the vulva with the cervix and the uterus. It's where menstruation comes out of the body, a baby comes out of the body through childbirth, and or one place sexual penetration by a penis, finger, sex toy, etc. can happen. During menstruation, it's where tampons or menstrual cups are placed. So a condom uh, is a sheath. Sometimes it's latex. Sometimes it's made up of different uh, uh, substances. It's kind of like a protective barrier that you can put over a penis uh, if you're having a male to female intercourse uh, to protect. It's really to keep the skin from touching each other so that secretions don't touch. And it has two you know, main things. One is it protects you from sexually transmitted infections. So keeps skin from touching and some uh, infections you can get just by you know, the skin of the penis 
touching the skin of the vulva area or touching on the inside of the vagina. Um, so it keeps, uh, uh, protects you from sexually transmitted infections, but it also keeps sperm from getting in contact in the vagina and going into the uterus and meeting the egg and forming a baby. So it helps to protect from pregnancy. We also have condoms, not just that go on top of the penis, but that uh, go inside of the vagina uh, to protect, uh, you know, so the woman can put in a condom themselves. So really a condom is an example of something that you can use to keep yourself from getting pregnant when you're not ready to, and also to protect yourself from sexually transmitted infections. Well, wait, 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 there's even more to think about in terms of how one uses a condom. And it's possible that people who are heterosexual, people who are gay, people who are non-binary, may be thinking about using condoms in different kinds of ways. And so this is when Mary Emily O'Hara then interrupts. Now, Mary Emily O'Hara, as you know, is an LGBTQ media and policy expert, and they are also a rapid response manager at GLAD. I've told you that before, but what you also need to know is that they've written for Teen Vogue, Vice, Rolling Stones, The Advocate, Al Jazeera, and more, helping to level set, just thinking about how we should be thinking about Sex 101, how we should be thinking about inclusive language and inclusive thinking with regard to sex and sexuality. Sorry, could I interrupt just really quickly? I, I hate to be the person that just butts in and interrupts, but I just wanna state again, see, this is the kind of thing that we do encounter when it comes to LGBTQ inclusion in sex education is things like the idea that a condom is just for penis to vagina sex, for example. Condoms are used by gay and bisexual men for anal sex as well, and also for anal sex by heterosexual couples and also for use on toys um, with women who sleep with women and trans people. There are so many different uses for condoms, but when we talk about these things, the, the part of sort of sexual and reproductive health equity is making sure that we recognize, for example, that all different kinds of people have periods. So we don't use terms like girls um, bleeding, girls you know, having their first period because we need to recognize also that trans men and non-binary people also have periods. When we talk about condoms, we need to make sure that we talk about everyone who is using them and why, and why it's so important to talk about that inclusion that gay and bisexual men face incredibly high rates of uh, HIV risk. And so condoms are very important and it's very important that we talk about the kind of sex that they're having when we do talk about condoms. I just wanted to throw that in there to make sure we we are keeping in mind the sort of LGBTQ inclusive, the, the different genders, different body parts and the different anatomies that people do have and the different ways that they have sex and use these products. Mary's right, these times demand greater inclusivity, more nuanced thought, a broader and expansive view about how we understand, how we define these very things. And so back to definitions, let's talk about a tampon. What's a tampon? So a tampon is can be made from different substances. Uh, you know, it could be, you know, cotton-based, cloth-based. Uh, it's a, a, you know, a, you know, it looks like the shape of a finger uh, and it is a substance that you insert, uh, can be inserted in a vagina uh, when uh, to kind of suck up the menstrual blood so that the menstrual blood does not come out and for example, soil your clothes or soil your underwear. So it's something uh, that people use during a period uh, to help uh, a suck up menstrual blood and, uh, you know, just uh, uh, help to manage menstruation. Okay, okay. I know a lot of you know what a tampon is and a lot of you know what a sanitary pad is, but come on, why is it that it's called a sanitary napkin? What's napkinish about it? Maybe there's some logic to this. And is there a difference between a sanitary pad and sanitary napkins? All right. So we're learning again from Dr. Forna. Yeah, people can use the term in interchangeably. Again, a sanitary pad or napkin, uh, also usually made of cotton or cloth. Um, and it is something that people put on, in, on their underwear uh, during a period, same concept as a tampon, 
but it's on the outside and it soaks up that menstrual blood uh, so it doesn't seep through underwear and clothes. It is something uh, you know that people can use uh, so that you can go around your regular activities uh, during a period. And, and it's something it, it's important to talk about because you know not just in, in industrialized countries, there are countries around the world where people use other things not just the sanitary napkins uh, or cloth. You know, women use grass, women use other substances because they might not have, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, access to these products. And uh, in some places, when you don't have access to sanitary napkins or, or pads, uh, people who have periods are severely impacted. They might not be able to work. They don't go to school. They stay home. Uh, the whole week and don't leave their house because they don't have something to protect them from soiling their clothes and, and uh, managing what is going on. So listening to a conversation like this with Dr. Forna, with Kelly, with Jennifer, with Mary, and I couldn't help but think that these aren't the conversations that are taking place every day and they should be. And so in thinking about this with Kelly, I wanted to know, given her experience working in public health in New York City uh, and so much more, how can we get beyond the stigmatization and the shame? How might Kelly see the effects of this social and political discrimination that's impacting real people in their real lives? And how can we fight something as intangible as shame when it has such real world impacts? Um, well, thanks for that question. Uh, I feel very strongly that it is our governments um, and uh, NGOs and also individual leaderships responsibility to really dismantle racism, gender oppression and homophobia, right? We can give out free tampons, which is absolutely necessary, especially for those folks that are living in the criminal injustice system, um, who are in foster care, who are dealing with um, poverty um, or other forms of discrimination, but really the root is identifying why folks that are capable of pregnancy, why women of color, why people outside of the gender binary or people that are gender expansive continue to move through life without having the medical service or the human rights that uh, everyone's talking about. Um, having menstrual products because it's a function, a body function is a part of a human right, right? And so um, really getting to the root and dismantling those things it's really the only way that we're going to move forward with totally eradicating all of the disparities that we see related to um, menstruation, related to sexual and reproductive health, including but not limited to maternal mortality, HIV, other STIs, infant mortality. All of these things have a common root that I know that the folks here on today's podcast are really um, devoted to dismantling. So when it comes to uh, sexual education, we've talked about this earlier, creating national systems that say, starting elementary school, that appropriate sexual education should be a part of folks' everyday um, lives inside of our public school systems, which we know is more than likely to be experienced by people who are low income or people of color who utilize our public health school system. Certainly in the city that I reside, New York City, that's the bulk of the students inside of the system, right? But who has access to comprehensive sexual, ed, sexual health? And in New York City, we're very blessed to have like school-based health services, right? So I can get plan B if I've had unprotected sex and I do not wish to be pregnant inside of the school system, I can get gender affirming care, um, but even that's not universal. And New York City and you know other states that have, I would say more democratic uh, leaning legislatures or folks that are, have a better public health infrastructure um, have those where we know across the nation and then also across the world that that is not um, available. But let's be clear, there's a reason, there's a reason that all of this is politicized. The idea is that if we keep 
the power, if, if you are a person who menstruates, if you are a woman, if you are a person of color, if I can keep you from reaching your full potential as far as wealth, as far as schooling, as far as community involvement, right? What does society earn? What does capitalism earn? What does structural racism earn by not having folks be able to fully participate in society, right? That means that power can remain concentrated in the hands of wealthy white cisgender men. And we see that in every aspect of society and every aspect of healthcare, right? We've heard a lot about racism in healthcare, particularly during the COVID-19 pandemic, not just here, but across the world. If you're looking at who's dying in Brazil, if you look at what's happening in South Asia, if you look at who's died here in the United States, and it applies those same, the same ways that racism, sexism, gender oppression, um, homophobia show up in COVID is how they show up in sexual and reproductive health, right? It's why certain states, states that have majority indigenous, Native American and black um, people like the South, like the Southwest. Continue, Former Confederate states. Yes, yeah. continue not to invest in sexual education for children, adolescents and young adults. Okay, it's getting hot in here. And rightfully so, because Kelly is telling it like it is. She is reporting, <laughs> repelling, and telling it like it is because she's exposing the kinds of questions that so many in our audience want to know. For example, why is it that the United States is the deadliest place in the developed world for a person to be pregnant? Why is it that it's safer in Saudi Arabia or in Bosnia to carry a pregnancy to term than it is in the United States? The very places that she's talking about are places where the death rates associated with carrying a pregnancy to term are just simply alarming. I mean, nationally, Black women are three and a half times more likely to die during childbirth and delivery than are white women. And it only is more dramatic. And those figures are exacerbated if we're looking at places that have made it very difficult to get access to sex education, reproductive health, or to be able to get an abortion. You know, um, just a quick news sweep and you'll find that there are articles that say that Texas is the deadliest place in the developed world for a person to be pregnant. We have to explore why that is and we know education makes a huge difference. All right, so, and back to education. Kelly mentioned plan B. So we need to figure out what that is. Uh, well, thanks for asking that question. Um, plan B is, uh, a pill or a series of pills that you can take after having unprotected um, sexual intercourse um, if you are uh, wanting to prevent an unplanned or unwanted pregnancy. It used to be very marginalized, uh, have marginalized availability. Uh, back when I needed to use it 10 years ago, you had to ask a pharmacist and show your ID. Now I went to Target yesterday and it's in the aisle with the condoms, with the tampons, which is a result of a lot of advocacy. It's now often freely available inside of school-based health centers, particularly in places where sexual education is um, more liberal. Um, and you're allowed to mention unprotected sex uh, or abortion, oftentimes you can find plan B, but it's still, it's expensive, right? Yesterday in Target, I saw that it was 40 American dollars. And we know that folks, for some, that that is cost prohibited. Um, however, it is also covered by Medicaid in certain states, particularly states that have Medicaid expansion through the Affordable Care Act. And so if you find yourself um, in need, a plan B or you had a, a night on the town or early morning and you're thinking that you might be at risk is something that you can take. But one thing to clearly state is that there are certain there are different types of pills. And if you are overweight, uh, particularly over 180 pounds, some of the pills are less um, efficacious than other pills. So you might want to talk to your healthcare provider um, if you have questions, even though it is currently available over the counter. Okay, I hope that you've been taking notes because there's been a lot that we've covered in this episode and there's even more work to do. But we're not finished yet. 
and it's really important for me to turn back to Mary and Mary's work at GLAAD and Mary's work as a journalist because they have consistently worked to set the record straight. And there are real questions that continue to exist even beyond this program about the ways in which we teach sex ed and what's missing in terms of teaching it in a holistic, inclusive, and belonging way for LGBTQ youth. And quite honestly, um, how we relate to young adults and adults too, and thinking about health and the body, the language we should use, the inclusiveness that we should invite. So here's what Mary had to say about that. Yeah, absolutely. And um, first, I just wanted to uh, mention that I do identify as non-binary and my pronouns are they, them. Um, so as a member of the community myself, I think that I have a sort of dualistic uh, perception here in that I have access to some of the data, of course, around trans and LGBTQ health and what's missing, but also an anecdotal experience through the community, through friends, partners, loved ones, to know what people experience on a daily basis when they seek and receive health care. And I think, as I mentioned before, one of the main issues that we're dealing with is a lack of education across the board. The fact that there's only six US states that mandate that sex ed be LGBTQ inclusive is a huge problem because from the very beginning, what's happening is LGBTQ youth are not seeing their issues reflected back at them, and they're not getting the most basic education in terms of what happens to your body, um, what, what you might need during sex, how sex can be defined as different things for different people, depending on their attraction and who they have sex with, but also depending on their anatomy and how their anatomy might be different from other people. Um, so that's one major issue that we're always fighting. And then this year, of course, in terms of state legislation, there were so many anti-LGBTQ state bills introduced around the country. And while many of those focused on restrictions against trans people, especially trans youth, which we've seen, I, I feel like most people at this point are familiar with all of the state bills that are attacking trans youth's access to sports and healthcare. Um, but then there's also bills that are trying to ban LGBTQ inclusion in sex ed very specifically. And then there's other bills that um, are what we call don't say gay laws, which mandate that teachers and educators and schools not be allowed to refer in any way to LGBTQ people. So these kinds of laws are already in place in many states across the country. Um, and what happens there is that it's actually illegal for teachers and educators to mention anything about being LGBTQ in schools. So your history teacher, for example, might not be able to inform students about the Supreme Court ruling that legalized same-sex marriage around the country, or they might be able to teach about someone like Harvey Milk, but never mention that he's gay. Um, and when you have things like that happening in schools, you're getting this double whammy of not being taught that uh, queer and trans people even exist. But then also, if you are an LGBTQ youth yourself, you're really in the dark, especially if your family of origin or your caretakers at home are not affirming and you can't safely be out or have anyone to talk to about these issues at home. And then you go to school and you're not learning anything there either. And I think that, that um, that's definitely something that leads to problems for people as youth and also later in life. And then when it comes to the healthcare system itself, obviously we're battling an enormous slate of state laws that are attacking youth access to affirming and appropriate gender transition care, which is one issue. But then we have an ongoing issue where queer and trans people encounter a medical system and medical providers who are often not informed about the most basic levels of our care. And that's not just for trans people. I think it's more egregious for trans and non-binary people, but it can also be true for lesbian and bisexual women, gay and bisexual men and boys, um, you know, really anyone going to the doctor who might not fit the, the typical cisgender heterosexual model of 
living and existing, um, we often find that doctors don't know our, our issues, don't um, understand what to do with our bodies. A lot of trans people find that they have to educate their doctors about the most basic levels of their health care, or even that they're turned away from care for things that are otherwise universal and innocuous just because they're trans. Many trans people have had the experience of a doctor telling them, I'm sorry, I don't know how to treat you. I don't specialize in this. When they're going to the doctor for something as simple as a broken arm or you know, cold symptoms or, or something like that, so there's it's just plain old discrimination that's that's packaged. It's it's a proxy for discriminating. It is a proxy for discrimination, but it's also I mean it's a lack of education. I think that there's doctors and medical providers that would like to feel that they're informed to provide a trans person with basic care. But somehow they think that the broken arm and an arm is an arm is an arm. Exactly. What else is You know, a few years ago, there was an article going around that referred to it as trans broken arm syndrome, right? Because it's the idea that that a trans person's body is somehow so fundamentally alien or so fundamentally different when in reality, you know, we're, we're all human. We all have a cardiovascular system. At this point in the episode, you'd be forgiven for your mind being blown by these incredible guests or your fingers being a little bit numb because you've been scribbling notes or because you're kind of ticked off. Ticked off because in 50 minutes, we've been able to cover more than what young Americans get in four years of high school. And some of you may be feeling that it's a crying shame, as they would say, as my grandmother would have said, the fact that there are kids that have no idea of not learning about their bodies and then you reconcile that against the fact that the united states leads all industrial nations in terms of teen sexually transmitted diseases and we know if those are untreated they can be deadly later on in life and we can look at the high rates of teen unintended pregnancies when compared to peer nation and see that the United States is way off the mark there too. And so much of this comes down to education, which kids are being denied. But he also might be pissed off just by the fact that people who experience menstruation have to pay a penalty or a tax because that's what their bodies do by having to pay this luxury tax on tampons. And you might be ticked off that in jails and prisons across the country right now, there are people who have to do sex favors in order even to be able to get access to a tampon. These are realities in our country. And so I wanted to turn back before we end the show to Jennifer Weiss Wolf, um, because She's been working and writing and advocating in this area. And some might say, what does law have to do with it? But as she's going to tell us, it actually has everything to do with this topic area. Well, in some ways, the law has everything to do with it. And it's and it's an opportunity to do so much in our society. It's an opportunity to actually rethink the rules by which we live and, and reset the game. Um, It's an opportunity to think more broadly about representation and what it looks like and what it doesn't look like. Um, And it's also an opportunity, I think, ultimately to change our values, um, to change the norm. Um, You, by changing laws, you not only can sort of impact the broadest swath of people, um, potentially, but you also can create a value system or values language and and say affirmatively what it is that you are for. In the case of menstruation, um, it's actually been, um, it's it's been kind of extraordinary to see how um, 
quickly and readily lawmakers have been willing to consider this. And you had mentioned um, Representative Harad from Colorado. And there are many, many, many um, in all 50 states and even in Congress who've been willing to take this on. Now, it's still piecemeal and it's still baby steps um, because while you referenced before the circumstances, for example, of people who are incarcerated, um, which, which obviously the plight goes far beyond managing menstruation, but that is one, one of the indignities um, and one of the um, injustices. 13 states in the past couple of years have actually legislated something so basic as mandating menstrual products. And we could maybe say that that is an advance because that wasn't the situation before. But on the flip side, that means that there are 37 states that still do not. Um, and same is true of addressing all of these other sort of policy um, you know, policy items that have made it onto the legislative floors, whether it's examining sales tax and menstrual products, whether it's considering education and schooling and menstruation, whether it's considering the safety of menstrual products. Um, so all of that is an opportunity to educate, to advocate, um, and to change hearts and minds while we change laws. And that's just policy. And maybe for another day, the conversation could be about the law because, um, the, the law is a slightly different lever as we look to the courts, as we look to jurisprudence, as we look to the roots of what make these, these various regulations and policies um, doable and achievable and considerable in the first place. Um, and there is kind of an entire trove of untapped law when it comes to looking at everything from the 14th Amendment um, to, to Title X to um, the various ways that we've considered um, ideas of gender and discrimination in the law and folding menstruation into that. Um, and that's something that I've started to do uh, through my organization, Period Equity, as well. Um, and that is <laughs> that is a whole other conversation. All right. As we began wrapping up the show, I just couldn't help but think that we needed to do it again. There's more information for us to digest, more for us to learn. And there are going to be some questions that even experts may not know and may say, yep, we need to learn more about it, such as how do trans men experience menopause? How do we address in a healthy way um, the sexual activities of individuals who are living in nursing homes who are seeing spikes in sexually transmitted infections at nursing homes that are providing care and housing for people who are in their 80s and it turns out they're getting sexually busy there too there's much for us to learn about human sexuality and there's much for us to stop feeling ashamed about and to be a little bit more liberated about in terms of our bodies in order to keep them healthy and safe in order to be preventative and here's what mary had to say about that you know it Again, this is where we encounter um, the need for more data and research and also the frequency with which LGBTQ people have to inform their doctors because it's, the, I know we're talking about menopause right now, but it's really so many different things that get missed in the community. All individuals with a uterus or a cervix or breasts or a prostate gland really need to be offered regular preventative and diagnostic screenings for those organs. And that so often gets missed with um, trans people and LGBTQ people in general. I mean, trans men can get ovarian cancer, trans women can get breast cancer. And when it comes to menopause, we're talking about different variations of it in the different communities, right? So some trans men might choose to have um, uh, a hysterectomy and essentially go through surgical menopause, which is what happens quite suddenly after a hysterectomy if the ovaries are removed. And that's something that people really need to be prepared for and understand how that can impact their body, especially if they're undergoing hormone replacement therapy. Um, you know, people need to go into transition care understanding their own fertility, whether they want to have their eggs or uh, sperm banked and harvested before they undergo transition-related uh, surgeries. So there's so many different factors in, in to consider there. And I feel like the biggest issue really is that most doctors, and honestly, you know, most people in general, don't even know some of the things that do happen to trans people's bodies. Like the, for example, we talked about trans women having 
period symptoms, everything but the bleeding, trans women getting breast cancer, needing to get breast exams as well as prostate exams. Um, and when it comes to menopause, you know, when you're when, when you have estrogen and progesterone, whether they occur naturally or whether those are hormones that you're taking for replacement, you're gonna have a lot going on there with all the different shifts and you're gonna need a lot of education from your doctor to know how to manage those things. After a long and nuanced conversation, it was time to wrap up with our silver linings. And I was so absolutely grateful to my guests. I started with Kelly. I mean, the silver lining is that we continue to innovate um, and hold each other inside of community, right? So all of the things that we've talked about, whether they be in policy around sexual uh, education in schools, whether they be around organizing um, to have affirming care inside of hospital systems and dignity as we walk through the world, I feel so encouraged. The silver lining has always been um, the organizing power of community, particularly for me and my work and all this work around sexual and reproductive health, let's not forget that um, Black and Indigenous, Native American um, women and feminine folks are, whatever you're talking about, are most likely at risk because they're dealing with multiple systems. And yet they continue to organize. We continue to have sex. We continue to express um, pleasure and joy through our sexual lives, through our emotional lives. And that for me is always the silver lining that we continue to seek joy and organize even in the midst of some pretty, pretty restrictive and toxic systems. Oh, Kelly, and do I not hear you? I'm you, you make me think of my maternal grandmother who was from Mississippi, like you've mentioned of yourself, and who would always talk about, don't let anybody ever steal your joy. It's like a black woman's mantra. All right, Mary, what's the silver lining? Well, I think the silver lining uh, in terms of LGBTQ healthcare is that it is becoming safer and more inclusive for LGBTQ people every day. We are seeing increases in education, increases in um, visibility and just communities speaking out. LGBTQ youth today have the internet. They're not completely in the dark. They have ways to find things out even if they're not getting that information at home or in school. And I think when it comes to trans, um, well, not just trans health, but LGBTQ, health and, and sexual health in general, we're seeing a lot of new tech and companies and inventive ways for people to sort of fill these gaps in people's needs, whether it's a company like Laurel's that makes um, essentially dental dam wearable underwear, or whether it's companies like Folks and Plume that supply trans healthcare digitally for people who can't get access to hormones and affirming care um, where they live, but they can use these apps to get hormones delivered to their home or to get uh, the letters that they need for a name change, things like that. So we're seeing the community really step up and step in. And I think, um, you know, just, just as people have said, that's kind of a beautiful thing. And it's, it's how we see progress and advancement in general is the community stepping up, organizing, taking things into their own hands and saying, we need these changes. We're gonna do it ourselves if you don't do it. And then sort of inspiring the market and the healthcare industry to catch up from there. And Jennifer, silver lining. Um, it's so hard to do anything but just build on those two answers. Um, as, as somebody who's maybe a little bit more remote in my own work as, as who considers things through sort of this, this strange compulsion <laughs> to value the law, um, the idea of, of, of melding all of this, of melding community, of melding activism, of melding advocacy, of melding innovation um, with the power that the law has had in our society for better and for worse, and to use that as a, as a force of good um, is, <coughs> excuse me, is, is, is my own, my own <laughs> it's sort of like my only vision and my only hope. And every time I have one of these conversations, um, all I can think about is how much true 
extraordinary power exists when when we are all together with these gifts. So thank you to everybody on this discussion. It has been such a true privilege to listen to you all. And, and that is my silver lining today as well. And Dr. Forna, I'm going to let you dance us out because um, I have taken such pleasure and joy from seeing the advocacy and the work uh, that you've been doing and the lives that you've been touching. So silver lining. Silver lining for me is information. We're in the age of information. We have the internet and that's allowing marginalized people to figure out what's going on and learn from it, even if they, if information is withheld from them. If we withheld information from kids in schools or their parents don't talk to them, there is a way for them to find that information. You know, I'm talking to you from Sierra Leone where 80 to 90% of young girls are circumcised. They have their clitoris cut off. They are not able to achieve their full potentials when it comes to sexual and reproductive health. Well, there's a change. We now have a global community where people are learning about their bodies and learning about their function. And girls are standing up and saying, oh, wait, we need to have this conversation. This is not something we need to do. And we're seeing a change where those rates are decreasing with modernization and with information. So for me, the silver lining is the world being able to connect and get information. It doesn't matter where you are. You have access to the internet. You have have, have access uh, to information and whether uh, you're queer or whether you're uh, a young girl living in a village in Sierra Leone or a young black woman in Atlanta, you have information to connect and improve your sexual and reproductive health. Guests and listeners, that's it for today's really exciting episode of On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin. I want to thank my guests, Jennifer Weiss-Wolf, Mary Emily O'Hara, Kelly Davis, and Dr. Fatu Forna for joining us and being a part of this critical and insightful conversation. And to our listeners, I thank you for tuning in for the full story. We hope that you join us again for our next episode where we will be reporting rebelling and telling it like it is with special guests tackling critically important issues. For more information on what we discussed today, head to MsMagazine.com. Now, if you believe, as we do, that women's voices matter, that equality for all persons cannot be delayed, and that rebuilding America being unbought and unbossed and reclaiming our time are important, then be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcast. We are ad-free and reader-supported. Help us reach new listeners and bring that hard-hitting content you've come to expect by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. Let us know what you think about our show. And please support independent feminist media while you do that. Look for us at MsMagazine.com for new content and special episode updates. And if you want to reach us to recommend guests for our show or topics that you want to hear about, then write to us at OnTheIssuesAtMsMagazine.com. And we do pay attention to and read our emails. This has been your host, Michelle Goodwin, reporting, rebelling, and telling it like it is. On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin is a Ms. Magazine joint production. Kathy Spiller and Michelle Goodwin are our executive producers. Our producers for this episode are Roxy Zoll and Oliver Hogg. The creative vision behind our work includes art and design by Brandy Phipps, editing by Will Alvarez and Marsh Allen, and music by Chris J. Lee. Stephanie Wilner provides wonderful executive assistance.